Well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to mark Mark 8, uh, we're going to be there in a moment. Uh, we're going to work through Mark 8 all the way up to Mark 11. Uh, we're not going to obviously look at every part of it, but we're going to consider the significance of uh, Jesus' triumphal entry. And uh, so you can uh, find Mark 8 in your Bible. As a father of four girls, I find myself often as uh, they might be bickering about something or, or fighting over something, I find myself continually telling them what the Scripture says about their bickering. For example, uh, if we decide we're going to take hope somewhere and one of our other daughters wants to go, we try to teach them that they should be excited for hope. That you should count it joy that your sister gets to do something you would like to do. You should be happy for them. And even as I know that's true, it's more blessed to give than receive, there's a sense as a father where I'm going, this is, this is impossible, though. <laughs> like, is one of my daughters going to all of a sudden say, you know what? My life isn't about me. How can I bless one of my sisters? How crazy for me to forget this. There's a sense in which I look at the miracles of the Old Testament where God parts the Red Sea, and I think that's an amazing miracle. God pushes water aside, but wouldn't it be a greater miracle if all of the sudden, a person started considering someone else more important than themselves. It seems like a greater impossibility. How can these things be? How is it for you? Have you ever recognized your selfishness? Maybe in light of someone else's selflessness, and you've thought, I don't think I could ever do it. I don't know if I could ever be like that where I actually prefer somebody else and their circumstances more than my own. Has it ever seemed impossible for you to begin to kill this in yourself? How about relinquish control? Do we have any controllers in the room? People who like things to go their way? Can you imagine a point in time where you would actually rather not get your way? Maybe you're in a marriage where you look at how it's gone thus far and how your heart feels about your spouse and you think, yeah, God can part the Red Sea. 
but He can't ever do what needs to be done in my heart or my spouse's heart for there to be hope. Have you ever thought, you know, I don't pray very much, not nearly as much as I should, and I can't ever imagine desiring communion with God over, you know, fill in the blank. Well, as we consider Palm Sunday, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with that? You know, how do, how do we think about this week? There's Palm Sunday. There's Good Friday. There's Easter. We know that Palm Sunday is Christ the King moving in towards Jerusalem. He gets celebrated as King on this day. And then we think of Good Friday when He dies on the cross for sins. And then we think about Easter, the resurrection from the grave. And we think about the implications this has for us. For example, we might say, well, we are moving towards glory in Christ Jesus, just as Jesus was as He moved towards Jerusalem. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, our sins can be washed away. And since He was raised from the dead, one day my dead body will also raise. That's probably a normal Easter week. Most sermons will be preached in that manner, and rightfully so. For all that is true. But all of these only emphasize a part of God's saving grace. These all emphasize the positional sanctification of a believer, the positional standing of a believer. In Jesus, His glory will be my glory. Since He died for my sins and gives me His righteousness, then I stand before God righteous. Since He's raised, I'll be raised. You see, it all focuses on our positional standing. That is true. That's part of the Gospel. But what's rarely emphasized or thought about is not just God's forgiving grace, because the grace of God in the New Testament is not simply that you can stand positionally right before God if you trust in Jesus, but the Bible also speaks of His transforming grace. The grace of God to change us. And this year, as we approach Easter, we're going to focus on the transforming grace of Christ. Not that we'll forget about our positional, because that's where it all begins. For example, you stand positionally forgiven, not guilty, if you're trusting in Christ. That's your positional standing. You're forgiven. You stand with Christ's righteousness. Let me give you a verse that emphasizes this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with Him, forgiving us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Part of the gospel of God's grace is this. If this is the report card of your life, and you have an F on here, which by the way, the Bible says you do, what Jesus did is he grabbed this out of your hands, and he took it to the cross, And this debt, the punishment for these sins, were canceled at the cross. And we find out in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that also, when that happened, Jesus handed you His report card, which by the way, He got an A+. And an exchange happened. So you stand before God not guilty. That is the best news in the world. Because you couldn't save yourself and I couldn't save myself. But the good news even gets better. When God saves you by His forgiving grace, He also is in the process of changing you by His transforming grace. Your sins lead to despair now, every time. They never satisfy what you think they're supposed to. That's why you got to chase them next week and the next week. And there's never rest. Well, is there any hope for my own selfish heart or for my daughter's selfish heart this side of heaven? to be changed? And the answer is, absolutely, there is. So what I want to do is I want us to work up to the triumphal entry. I want us to see what's going on with Jesus and His disciples up to this point in time. And point one in your notes is, as Christ suffered and died, so you must suffer and die. You might say, wait a minute, I thought I got out of that. Well, let's look at Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And here's what we're going to see. Three times, and once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, and once in chapter 10, the same formula happens. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die. His disciples essentially say, no, you're not, or "Uh uh-uh, we're not. And then he says, yes, you are. Yes, you need to. So here's what's always happened with the cross unless God changes someone's heart. They hear the gospel and they hate it. They say, no, that's not the way it's going to be. And then Jesus says, yes, that's the way it must be. So let's look at it. Look at verse 27, Mark 8. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, who do people say 
that I am. And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, when Peter says, you are the Christ, you have to understand what this means for a Jew. What were the prophecies about the coming Messiah? What does this mean for Israel? Well, let me just uh, share a few of these with you. Genesis 49.10, we see a prophetic message of the Messiah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Here's what this told the people of Israel. When the Messiah comes, he's going to be a king. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to have a staff. He's going to be a shepherd. And things are going to be so good that people are going to go to the choice vine and they're going to take their donkey and tie their donkey to it. What's the donkey going to do? He's going to eat the grapes. Well, that's okay because the abundance is so great when the Messiah comes. In fact, we're going to wash our clothes in wine. We're not even going to use water anymore. We got so much wine. Let's wash our clothes in it. Peter just said, You're the Christ. Look at what has begun. And then in Numbers 24.17, we hear this prophecy, I see Him, but not now, but I behold Him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here's a king. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed, Sarah also. His enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly in this day. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. When this Messiah comes, He's going to be a valiant king that destroys all of Israel's enemies. Now for the last 70 years, Israel's had a king. They called him King of the Jews. Herod and Herod's sons. Rome is in power over Israel. And they let them be a legal religion, but they gave them their king. And they don't like the taxes they have to pay. This king isn't kind to them, doesn't really love their God, but Peter said, our valiant king has arrived. What about 2 Samuel 7, where Samuel prophesies to David about one who will come from his line? In verse 11 it says, From the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, 
I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you'll lie down with your fathers. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish his throne or the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This coming king is the one who brings victory. No longer will Israel be scattered when this king comes. Or how about Micah 5.2? The prophecy of the birth of Christ. But you, O Bethlehem of Phratha, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and there shall be peace. Or how about Psalm 110? Verses 1 and 2, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So when Peter says, you are the Christ, the disciples are going, it's unbelievable. The greatest king there's ever been. Who's his best friend's? We are. He's going to glory. Guess what this means for us? Glory. So Peter says this, that you are the Christ. Look at verse 31 of Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die, and I'm going to be raised. And Peter says, No, I just said, You're the Christ. This is not the way forward and Peter gets rebuked and so does Satan. You see the smell of Satan's presence when you see people avoiding the cross. That's what he will always do. And then look at verse 34. Look at what Jesus does. In calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So what do you think of Jesus' message? Yeah, that's right. I'm the Christ and I'm going to die. And by the way, so are you. Are you ashamed of that? Do you want that? And then look at chapter 9. Verse 30. Jesus foretells His death again. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The reason why they didn't understand is because they were only looking at the victorious prophecies of the Messiah. They weren't thinking about Isaiah 53 where the Messiah, here's the suffering servant of Israel that's going to pay for Israel's sins. Otherwise, it would make total sense. But you got to get in the mind of the disciples here. They can't imagine Messiah without victory. Political victory. Political peace. It's not in their brain. They don't understand it. And here's all we know. Look at verse 33. So Jesus just says he's going to die. And boy, these disciples have to be encouraging friends. Verse 33, when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must first of all be servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, whoever receives such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives... whoever." receives me, receives not me, but Him who sent me. Jesus says, I'm going to die. They argue about who's going to be the greatest. See? They're not on board with His Gospel. This take up the cross thing. They're on board with, where am I going to line up in this thing? Who Who's the greatest? And then once again, Jesus teaches them about greatness. The greatest is going to get the lowest. The great one's going to suffer. And then look at chapter 10. Verse 32. And we're nearing Christ's triumphal entry here. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. He's not just walking down any road. 
However he's walking, they're taking recognition. He's out front, and they're amazed at it and even afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise. Maybe third time's the charm. Maybe not. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This sounds like there's something going on here. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit at your right hand, one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, Now just wait a minute. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, what does He say? Glorify your Son. You really want to sit at His right and left hand in glory? Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, the the cup and baptism represents the judgment of God. In the cup is judgment. This The baptism in the sea is always judgment. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? They said to Him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. That's shocking. That means there's hope for my daughters. Because right now, it doesn't seem like these disciples are going to go to their death for Christ. It seems impossible. They want glory, not suffering. And then he says, but to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those to whom it's been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. You see, they're not innocent. They, they're upset because they want to be sitting there. Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that the, those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And then what does He do? He heals the blind Bartimaeus. And at the end of this, look at, look at, uh, um, verse 51. Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now don't miss this last line. And immediately he recovered his sight. And what does it say? He followed him 
on the way. On what way? Where's Jesus going? Jesus is on the road to his death. And blind Bartimaeus was healed to get on a road to go die. And Jesus has just taught his disciples, if you want to live, you need to die. If you want to live, you need to take up your cross. And then we get to the triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. They went and found the colt tied at the door outside the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Now this is fulfilling prophecy as Christ mounts this colt. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Isn't that amazing? This king that comes riding on a donkey and sets them free from their enemies, we are told, is the blood of the covenant that will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. There's going to be living water there because of the blood of the covenant. We're going to talk about this at the end of the service. Look at verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches they cut from the fields. These are palm branches. When Israel would wave palm branches, it means God has worked victory for Israel. These are victory branches. Look, our salvation is here. Finally, peace. Finally, victory. And on those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, oh, save, please save. And then they quoted Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
Talk about a man, we all got hyped up for what? He walks into Jerusalem and he looks at the temple. It's going to get worse for him. And then he's going to go and be killed. This isn't what they were signing up for, but Jesus said, you also need to pick up your cross. You also need to die. As your first point declares, as Christ suffered and died, so you must suffer and die to yourself. You see, a new creation needs to happen. And that'll happen as Christ helps us destroy and die to our own selfishness. But here's the question, how? So with my daughters, how is it going to happen? How is it going to happen in my heart? How is your marriage going to change? How is your sin that you've struggled with over and over and over and over and over and over and over again ever going to change? Is there any hope or are you just waiting for Jesus to come back? Is that it? You're just assigned to your selfishness and sin until you die? Well, I want to read an excerpt from a book called Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace. It's a book on fighting lust and addiction to pornography and just uh, any sort of lust. I recommend it to anybody. Because if you understand how to fight lust, you know how to fight any sin. But there's a section on transformative grace. And let me just read a little bit to you. Many people spend a lot of time pursuing forgiveness. That's asking God to forgive them for their sins. That's the positional standing. They beg and plead for forgiveness after indulging in pornography, but they don't know what to do next. The Bible teaches that in addition to confessing sin and seeking God's forgiveness, you need to pursue God's powerful, transforming grace by believing the good news and walking in faith and obedience to the gospel. God's grace pardons you and forgives your sins, and God's grace empowers you to live differently and be obedient to Him. Oh, how you must treasure the sweetness of this grace. You need to ask for forgiving grace after you look at pornography, but don't stop there. Ask for God's transforming grace, His power to change you from the inside out. Because God is faithful to His Word and His promises, over time, you will receive God's power to never look at pornography again. God's powerful transforming grace can give you a pure heart. And you can subdue your desires for pornography. You can honor your brothers and sisters in Christ when you look at them instead of dishonoring them. You can have all of this and more. You just can't get it in your own strength and effort. You need the powerful transforming grace of Jesus. God's powerful transforming grace is available to you, but many do not know how to make use of it. 
having the power of Jesus to change without knowing how to use that power is almost like not having the power at all. It's like being stranded on an island with a fueled up airplane you don't know how to fly. It is crucial to discover how to grasp God's grace if you're going to benefit from it. If you want to use Jesus' transforming grace, you have to do something so easy that many find it impossible. You want me to keep reading? I got to this point and I'm just like, okay. What do I have to do? How do I put into action transforming grace? You ready? You have to believe it. Transforming grace works when you believe that Jesus gives it to you. The moment you believe in Jesus' grace to change you, you are changing. The more you continue to believe it, the more you'll continue to change. Now think of this. What if I recognize selfishness in my heart? And I know God forgives it on paper, but I don't have confidence that I'm really going to change much. Then I'm sitting here with transforming grace and I've never activated it by faith. He says, Paul writes in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Believe you're dead to sin. Yeah, but Paul, I'm not. Well, count yourself dead to sin. Believe you're dead to sin in the power of Christ. Not in what you can do. No, there's no hope there. Paul is saying that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ when you count it to be true. That is when you believe it. If you want to change and be like Christ, whether in the area of pornography or anything else, you must believe that in Jesus you have the power to change. When you believe the power is yours, and it is yours. So how do we take up our cross and die to our selfish desires? See, pornography is just a selfish endeavor to find hope where no hope is found. How could that ever be destroyed in my heart? To die to yourself by faith in God's transforming grace. That's how you can change. And there's four texts, and we're just going to have to super quick I'm just going to introduce them to you and you guys can go study them. First, transforming grace frees you to die to your selfishness. If you ask somebody, why did Jesus die on the cross? Who's a Christian? Almost everyone's going to say, for your sins. That's true. But listen to this Bible verse. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us. So this isn't Paul doing what he's doing. Christ's love is controlling him because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live, now here's why, why he died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins, and he died on the cross so that you can quit living for yourself. The same power to wipe away sins is there for you to quit being selfish. And you activate that power by trusting in Christ's transforming grace. And it's no surprise, what does it say right after this? These are verses that are well known to us. From now on, therefore, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. And this is all from God. Do you realize if you're an angry person, you can actually be unrecognizable? And not be known as being an angry person, God can actually change you. Do you know if you've had addictions your whole life, God can free you from those addictions? That the same power to wipe away your sin is there to change you? Do you hate your lack of growth in the Christian life? Well, there's grace there for your sin, and there's also power to change. It's the best news in the world. I just wonder if you've had any faith in God's transforming grace in your life. Second, transforming grace gives us a reason to believe that sin will not rule over us. In Romans 6, verse 4, well, I'll start in verse 1. What shall, we they, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here's what he said. No matter how high your sin goes, God's grace goes higher. So someone might say, well, let's just sin then and see how high God's grace goes. He says, he says, should we do that? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see that? He's saying, no, Jesus doesn't just take away your sins. He does that. He makes it so you can walk in new life. You don't have to be under this horrible slave master that's been ruining your life anymore. And in verse 11, he said, is the verse that I just read in that book. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin. Well, I could say, oh God, I, I always screw up. I just keep doing it. I keep doing it. I keep doing it. And the Bible says, well, here's who you are in Christ. You're forgiven. You're righteous. So be who you are. Believe you can be dead to sin, not in your own power, but through God's transforming grace in your life. Third, transforming grace provides you with all the power to live a godly life when you believe. Um, let me just read a few verses and you're going to have to look at the rest of this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Paul says, oh, I hope you get all sorts of grace multiplied to you. And then here's what he says next. 
His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. (laughs) All the power to life and godliness has been multiplied to you in the grace of Christ. Now, you can activate it by faith or not. Doesn't just, it's not just going to do it for you. But how do we live as Christians? We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Read all the way through verse 11 when you get home. He goes on and asks them to add, add all these attributes to their life. And at the end, He says, if these things aren't in your life, here's what's happened. Therefore, brothers, our, our, He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's been the problem. You quit believing in God's grace if these things aren't flowing out of your life. Fourth, transforming grace provides grace that transforms your desires. This is bigger than parting the Red Sea. That my selfish heart can actually begin to change, even if it's in slow increments. (laughs) Now that's a miracle. Listen to Ephesians 1. He's talking to Christians here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. All we did is we had a desire, we fulfilled it. We had a desire, we fulfilled it. We were enslaved to sinful desires. But verse 4 says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He, He goes on saying that, and then He ends up in verse 10, for we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that were prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. God can do the greatest miracle and help us kill our sin. When Jesus says, take up your cross, here's what He says. Here's what He's saying. He's saying you always lived for yourself and your own selfishness. What you need to do is watch what I do. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And so He says, you too follow in My footsteps. And look at, by the grace of God, these disciples, what did they do? They went and suffered some of the worst deaths possible. Some of them even on the cross. How'd they do that? By the grace of God. So as we think about the triumphal entry, Jesus isn't just going to wipe us away from our political enemies. One day He'll come and His kingdom will reign on this earth. He wiped us away from our biggest one, which is a heart that loves sin. He canceled the debt so that when we screw up, we're not just ruined. There's forgiveness there. But then He says, I've provided power for you. Trust in Me to change you. Father, I pray 
that we would learn from our Master. Lord, we know that He died under Your wrath and we never will die that death. That is amazing. And the death that we will die is actually the death that frees us from all of our self-ruin. God, I pray that You would make us into different people. Unrecognizable from our selfishness, our pride, from our unbelief. Lord, I pray this, that You would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.